Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier. WMFA is coming back with season two in September, but in the meantime, I wanted to share some special content. Readings recorded live this summer at the Appalachian Writers Workshop. I've talked about the workshop before on the podcast. It's where I interviewed my last guest, novelist Jennifer Haig, whose workshop I was in. This was my first year attending the Appalachian Writers Workshop, which just finished its 40th year at the Heinemann Settlement School in Heinemann, Kentucky, and it was a big deal for me. It was the first place I took pages of my novel in progress, the first workshop in which I admitted that this project I've been working on on my own is real. It was a magical and supportive place to be vulnerable like that, and an insightful group of writers to get feedback from. You're about to hear three readings by workshop leaders, novelist Glenn Taylor, nonfiction writer Jeremy B. Jones, and poet and friend of the podcast, Rebecca Gale Howe. They're introduced by acclaimed poet Marianne Worthington and Keith Stewart, a hilarious writer and the author of Bernadette Peters Hates Me, True Tales of a Delusional Man. Marianne and Keith do a great job of introducing our readers, so I'll let them get to it. You can learn more about the Appalachian Writers Workshop at HeinemanSettlement.org. And if you like these readings, you can head to WMFAPodcast.com to subscribe to WMFA Presents, a regular series of guest readings. When you sign up, you'll receive the latest. Jennifer Hagues also recorded live at the Appalachian Writers Workshop. I heard Glenn Taylor make a public promise a few years ago when he vowed to never write a novel without including an epigraph from West Virginia Poet Laureate Louise McNeil. And so the famed poet has the first words in Glenn's three novels. The Ballad of Trenchmouth Taggart, a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award and published in 2008, begins with these words from Louise McNeil. I have gulled the pith from a sumac limb to play a tune that my blood remembers. Glenn's second novel, The Marabone Marble Company, published in 2010, begins with these words from McNeil. Black ground was fenced for men to till, the dead of Gauley on this hill. And Glenn's most recent novel, A Hanging at Cinder Bottom, published in 2015, also begins with a McNeil epigraph. Cook ovens glare red-eyed upon the darkness and belch their cinders at the fevered days. And I mention these three epigraphs because although he would deny it, Glenn Taylor, whom we generally recognize as a skilled novelist, is really a poet at heart. The New York Times said of his novel, A Hanging at Cinder Bottom, quote, Much of the novel is devoted to one long con, and this has its pleasures, a sort of Appalachian Ocean's Eleven, but the book's toothy joy is not to be found in its rigorous plot or even in the satisfying comeuppance of characters loathsome and obtuse. What makes a hanging at cinder bottom a bone-through, can't-quit-you-craving is Taylor's preternatural gift for language in particular the idiosyncratic cadence of West Virginia's spoken rhythms, which he offers up as a sort of music on every page. Glenn was born and raised in Huntington, West Virginia. He earned the MFA from Texas State University, 
and he lives now with his wife and his three sons in Morgantown, where he teaches in the MFA program at West Virginia University. And about his work as a writer, Glenn says this, If we do our job right, writers can, in the words of Muhammad Ali, shake up the world. I'll keep telling stories, says Glenn, in the end is the only thing I truly know how to do. Please welcome Glenn Taylor. Good Lord, Marianne. That's good stuff. Thank you, and thank you for your tea kettle as we're neighbors across the street, and I get to have hot coffee in the morning because of Marianne. Got a couple props I'm going to put up here. Um, all right, well, here's... Here's where we find out. I, I love this place. I love all of you. Thank you for having me. And one of the best parts of the setup is that we writers uh, on the staff get to yap, yap, yap in class, and then we have to come up here and see if we've got the goods. So <laughs> I really like that aspect and hate that aspect because you get to find out who crows and who lays the eggs. <laughs> so I hope that my... Uh, Talking with my students today about things like point of view in a novel and voice, that ever hard thing to pin down voice. Um, I hope I can live up to some of the things I said. Um, and since Marianne brought up Louise McNeil, I'll have to reveal to you the two lines from the next novel I'm currently working on, and they are these. And these are weird. These are the weirdest ones. And it's the weirdest novel, so get ready. <laughs> He breathes on the leaf, and the leaf is not blowing. So, my first three novels were all set in the past, between the years roughly 1872 and 1920, though the, the second one came all the way up to 1968. Um, and they were all told in an omniscient point of view by a big storytelling voice that knew everything. And they all took place in real places like Huntington, where I'm from, and Mate One, and Mingo County, where my dad's from. Um, and this novel, my fourth, doesn't do any of those things. It's set in the present, it's told in the first person point of view, and it's set in a town that's made up called Moses Town, West Virginia. So I'm doing three things I've never done before. Have no idea if it works, but one of the reasons I love you all so much is because you're nice people and you'll just pretend it's good even if it's not. <laughs> so here we go. This is just the beginning and some little snippets from the first couple chapters, um, right at about 8 o'clock, so I'll keep checking and make sure I stay on time here. This book is called Lay Me Down in Moses Town. On December 3rd, 2017, I got the phone call that my brother Stanley was dead. Here's what happened. I stood in aisle 9 at the proletariat Kroger on 2nd Street, cartless and single-minded. The store's co-manager, Curtis, stood before me. I asked him why the Kroger brand hemorrhoidal ointment had suddenly and without warning gone up in price by 52 cents. He pushed up his glasses by the nose bridge and squinted at the shelf tag. I'd met Curtis before. I knew him to be a glum, thick-accented kind of man who said the word Cincinnati any chance he got, sometimes forcing the word nasty in there, sometimes not. He claimed my inquiry pertained to what he called, quote, pricing maneuvers up at corporates and since nasty. He nodded his bald head, said, all right, Slim, and walked away. 
My phone vibrated in its watch fob pocket, and as always, I had a vision of plasmatic orange cancer waves pulsing into the lymph nodes of my groin, blazing a direct diagonal path to my right nut. (laughs) It was my sister, Dot. I answered the way I always did. Do it, Dottie. She said the words about Stanley that I would not hear. A muted ringing commenced in my right ear. I watched Curtis bend down to pick up a piece of cat food. He had a dime-sized cherry angioma on the crown of his bald head. The ear ringing quit. Dot's words remained in the King's English at first, then not. There was a sound in her voice, that worst of all sounds that some of us are made to recognize. Remy, she said, oh no. She made a, a, a moaning noise. Remy. I could neither speak nor listen, but I knew Stanley was gone. And I don't remember another thing Dot said to me. What I do remember is her moan. It was a low, rough signal, spread thin, like a tired old petting zoo billy goat. And then all was quiet. It was just me and aisle nine, and possibly halogen bright aisle nine, its rows of little yellow boxes carrying little tubes of salve. Things got weird in a hurry from there. My field of vision went white at the edges, and in the plasmatic lymph nodes of my groin there blossomed a pulsating warmth, and it spread in outward rings. The blood in my vessels carried hard to the ends of my fingers and toes. Under my fingernails there was a thumping swell. My feet grew in an instant by half a size. Pressure built under the white rubber toe shell of my converse where there was a red stain I'd acquired while eating a fried egg sandwich that carried, in retrospect, too much Louisiana hot sauce. I noted then, in the white blaze of aisle nine, that within the hot sauce stain was a wee bit of egg, and together, hot sauce and egg had become a thing which bore a curious resemblance to the dime-sized cherry angioma of bald-headed co-manager Curtis. Such a development did not seem unordinary, and here is why. In those moments, after Dot's call, it was as if I had sentient skin. My taste buds were like little Venus flytraps. My nose holes drew an unknown ether clear to the ears, where there arose a quiet roar. It was as if I could finally perceive how everything was everything, as if the rubber toe of my Converse All-Star was the crown of a living head, and the stain of a pepper sauce was an abnormal dermatological growth on that head. I could wiggle my toes and trigger a sensation in the rubber, like it was some kind of half-numb, porous outgrowth of my foot. I could taste upon the back of my tongue grapefruit concentrate and coal ash. I could smell every highborn evergreen from Georgia to Maine and every shit-caked toilet o-ring seal ever pried from tile. And I could hear quiet talking and singing from every pressed tin shelf around me. The oblong boxes of hemorrhoidal creams took on a harmonic voice and they read aloud in the approximate intonation of a chorus of 60 Steve Earls, their lists of ingredients. <laughs> Mineral oil, 14 gram. Petrolatum, 75 gram. Phenylephrine hydrochloride, 0.25 gram. Glycerin, 14 gram. Shark liver oil, 3 gram. It was plum nutty. I shut my eyes and tried to beat it all back. 
By instinct, I began a rhythmic dance of deep knee bends I'd used to settle my children in their respective infancies. I hummed a tune that had always calmed them when the croup came calling in the morning dark and they couldn't otherwise breathe. Was a wee bitty mouse who lived on the hill. Mm -hmm. He was rough and tough like a buffalo bill. Mm -hmm. Was a little mouse who lived on the hill. He was rough and tough like a buffalo bill. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The chorus of Steve Earls spurtled and died. I settled a little and opened my eyes. Aisle nine remained empty of shoppers. My field of vision regulated. I cradled close my box of hemorrhoidal ointment, one-handed and snug at the chest. There was a fleeting sense of having overcome something terrible, of having righted some crooked ship. And then, for the briefest measure, I forgot my brother was dead. And then I remembered. For there was death coming through the telephone, that was known. I looked down at it quiet and black in my other swollen hand. I pushed its buttons with my thumb and it lit up, told me what day it was, gave me the time. That's how I know it was exactly 8.20 p.m. when the power went out. The ceiling fluorescence surged and died. I dropped my box of ointment. I was looking at my feet. Beneath them, the floor's sheen had gone see-through like a glass-bottomed boat, and I could see the tops of the concrete footings and steel columns and a web of rebar and a yellow wax paper hamburger wrapper. In between, dirt. I saw worms the size of rat snakes down there, sidewinding, wringing themselves out, and then the lights were back and flooring too, and Curtis was at my elbow asking, All right, Slim. He picked up my hemorrhoidal ointment. He handed it to me. You might not believe me about all this, or maybe you're not wildly enthusiastic about the manner in which I tell a story. I apologize in advance. I assure you that I tried other ways, but none were right. All were tidy, but unnatural. This is as close as I got to my aim. My aim is to be clear and truthful to my brother, my family, and my city. You might still question the veracity of things, and I understand. It's natural to be curious, even skeptical, about how a phone fits in a fob pocket, or why a man might ever be called a Remy. As to the phone, it is, not, it is not a ridiculous affectation, it is only my phone. As to my name, it's nothing more than a nickname from way back, a shortening of my given name, which is Rimfire. I am Rimfire Hamrick Knox. Call me Remy. Take a little drink of water, and this is the start of... Chapter 2. And just a couple quick little snippets from this, and hopefully it doesn't get any weirder than that. <laughs> I wrote this book while looking out a window. Over my eyes, I wore aviator sunglasses with yellow lenses. And over my ears, I wore sound shield dielectric earmuffs. This is where it's going to get difficult. For three months, I awoke every day at four in the morning long before Susan and the children. I put on a pot of coffee, stretched my back into my legs, and pulled open the window blind above my desk. Sometimes my little bird friend was outside that window, perched on the broken-down Linux condenser, where in month two she began constructing a nest at the center of the big fan blade. I watched her through the glass. I named her Lucille. I put on those sunglasses and those earmuffs, and I wrote... 
If you ever get your hands on a pair of SoundShield dielectric earmuffs, put them over your ears, close your eyes, and listen to yourself breathe for 10 minutes. This will be the best 10 minutes of your day. I'm going to take these off now. That might not have been... I can't hear anything. <laughs> I've written books before. I even had a couple novels published a while back by a solid New York house. Neither book meets my current artistic standards, and perhaps, in hindsight, this is because I had no window when I wrote them. I was not in possession of the golden wash aviator frames, nor the muffs to silence the malarkey. There was no little bird Lucille, no uncut clover grass, nor trees with dancing branches full of fox squirrels fighting limb to limb. I wrote them when Susan and I lived in Baltimore, and both novels were largely set in Pigtown, where we resided for five years before we started having all these godforsaken children. <laughs> Neither book has much to say on my native West Virginia, much less Moses Town, city of my youth, city of my return. Both novels were callous and crass and full of a lazy brand of pessimism that destroys the red corpus souls of hope to steal from Dr. King. It is strange now to encounter this earlier pessimism because why should I have possessed it? What made me think I'd earned pain's keep? My bones didn't hurt back then and there was no phone death stalking me. I'd not yet come to know desperation nor the effort it can take to get out of bed. Back then, I was just a fool like anybody else, and a fool will inevitably pen a foolish tale. But I am not the man I was, and it follows that this book is different than the other two. This one is the truth, and the truth is that after December 3rd, 2017, writing was what got me out of bed. And what else could I have written about but the life and death of my brother Stan? He was a rare brand of human animal. My grandmother used to point at him when he was a little boy. This one here, she'd say, and she'd hook him by the neck and hug him tight to her pillar of a leg. He had from the egg ain't nobody peppered. Stan was wild. He knew no tribe, and yet he knew every tribe. Always, he brought different folks together by showing them what was the same. When he looked you in the eyes, you wanted to touch him. It was just that way. Here are some things to know about Stan, right up front. The only holy trinity he believed in, as far as what might save us from ourselves, was barbecue, song, and basketball. In February of 1994, he set an NCAA record for most threes scored in a game when he dropped in 15 of them against Moorhead State. The next morning, his girlfriend Lissa gave birth to Saul, who would be their only child. The morning after that, Stan called JoJo Bastinelli, Herald Advertiser Sports Column legend, and declared for the NBA draft. He went to the Washington Bullets as the 32nd pick, shone bright, and bottomed out quick. He lived in D.C., then France, then Spain, and then he lived, as he had for his first 20 years, in Mosestown. He tried to be a father to Saul. He started a business called Lawns by Knox and mowed 10,000 lawns. He cultivated a medium acreage cannabis crop and sold 10,000 ounces. He became a well-known and exceedingly controversial figure in the addiction recovery community. He paid for and oversaw the installment of nine city basketball courts. Stan was six foot four, and the release on his jump shot was something to behold. About that release, Bastinelli wrote in 1991, quote, Watching Stanley Knox shoot the rock is like watching on high-speed time-lapse film a morning glory flower spitting out a big orange spore and then closing its petals. Good night.
Stan himself told a good story. Before he left us, he told a big one and almost shook up the world. He merits, at the very least, a book. As to this book's illustrations, a few words. When I was a boy, I loved to draw. My sister Dot taught me dog jowls and horse faces. She eschewed houses with suns in the upper right corner, ragged smile families in the foreground waving at nobody. Our mother was a photographer by trade, mostly portraiture, and when I was five, I began asking if she would take a picture of my matchbox cars in a state of movement, or how about a picture of my Gene Simmons Mego doll standing in the kitchen window, arms up over his head, double-fisted in drywall nails. She always obliged. Always, she said in response to my photographic request, of course, sweet boy. She'd run through a roll, and I'd follow her to the dark room in the basement, and there I would watch the magic happen. Stop bath, fixer, clothespin, drip. That's when I grabbed the picture, after the last slow drip, and I ran upstairs to the kitchen, where the tracing paper lived in the squealing top drawer of the big pie safe, and I'd grab a sheet and lay it on the still damp 8x10 square and get to work with my big black marker, and soon enough, voila, a drawing traced from a photograph. So, there I was, post-December 3rd, 2017, and I wrote words on paper, but it wasn't enough. I needed more. I looked at Stan's things, things that I'd collected and circled around myself in the basement, things like a Shoeless Joe's skillet chicken receipt from the day he died, or three Altoid tins he'd spray-painted red, his boyhood Sony Walkman, his pocket knife. They sat there, all of them, shoulder to shoulder, a perimeter on my desk, laid out before the window pane. They looked at me while I wrote. I looked back. What I needed was pictures. I called my mother. I asked her, will you take a picture of my cellular telephone? Of course, sweet boy. Will you take a picture of me writing? Of course, sweet boy. Will you take a picture of Stanley's mower? Of course, sweet boy. My mother once made a photograph of Bill Withers singing Use Me into a birdcage microphone. The photograph hung in our kitchen next to a steel rack of scrap paper cookbooks. It was black and white and framed in leftover crown molding. When guests asked about it, my mother would say, That was 1974, Los Angeles. I was pregnant with Stanley, working shoots for Michael Oakes. She'd point to a spot of light in the portrait's top left corner. See that? That's buckshot. This was inside a Quonset hut near Culver City. During the previous night's jam session, somebody had stood outside and unloaded a shotgun, point blank. Right next door was an oil rig, my mother would say. She'd put her hands on her, hint, on her hips and commence to vigorously bend at the waist and swing back up again and again. Pump jack, she said. Had a circle of palm trees around it. In the photograph, Withers' afro is pristine and his mutton chops precise. His eyes are shut. My mother's focus was sharpest upon his left hand, thumb hooked around the rolled guitar neck. He looks like a man born to sing. I cried, my mother tells people. He'd sung, I can't write left-handed, right there in the Quonset hut. Her voice quivers when she recalls it. She says, he called a sound would make anybody cry. I met Bill Withers once, and he remembered my mother, remembered the buckshot tin of the Culver City recording hut, we talked about Raleigh Cowley, Mingo, MacDowell. We talked about pimento cheese and sweet pickles and the legendary exploits of Doris Payne. He looked me in the eyes and said, You can't sleep on slab four. 
The Withers portrait is one of roughly 80 black and whites hanging in my childhood home. A few are as big as a big are as big as a bay window. Most are eight by ten, a dozen the size of a playing card. Some are famous people, and some are just us. The famous people look regular. The Knoxes of Moses Town look famous. My dad wears a handlebar mustache and holds a twenty-pound cart, cigarette pinched in his smile. My sister Dot swings on a knotted rope in her underwear. Stan sits on a hand-me-down bicycle. His ball cap is backwards. His shin bones are mapped in bruises. We all stared down my mother's big yashika as if it wasn't there, as if we could see the rest of her in full bloom behind it, not just the scalp-lined part in her hair or the crow's feet of her shut left eye. Old Camerhead Bache, my dad used to call her. In my mother's work, we are who we were. We are freer than any of us can remember. Thank you. I'm fortunate enough to be working with our next reader this week. For all of you who are not taking the nonfiction class this year, I strongly suggest that you go to Jeremy Jones' um, website and find his upcoming schedule of, of workshops and plan accordingly. That can be found at www.thejeremybjones.com. Don't you love that? Because it's not just... JeremyBJones.com, but it's TheJeremyBJones.com. That's how you know you're the real deal is when you can put the the before your name. <laughs> and by the way, the B in the Jeremy B. B. Jones stands for brain, not Brian, as many of his fifth grade uh, classmates will tell you because that's how he thought he spelled his name for a while. <laughs> in Jeremy's book, Bear Wallow, he meshes narrative and myth, geology and genealogy, fiddle tunes and local color about the bristly changing and often stigmatized world of, the na of his native southern Appalachians. The book Bear Wall was awarded the Appalachian Book of the Year in nonfiction, a gold medal from the Independent Publishers Book of the Year Awards, and it was a finalist for the Thomas Wolfe Memorial Literary Award, the Weatherford Award for Best Appalachian Book, and the Judy Gaines Young Book Award. His essays have been named notable in Best American Essays and published in Oxford American, the Iowa Review, and Brevity, among many others. He is a master at finding the extraordinary in the ordinary. And if you don't believe me, just ask him for a copy of the essay he did on chest hair. He's an essayist, a poet, a musician, a professor, a husband, and most distinctly, an Appalachian. Please welcome Jeremy Jones. Thank you, Keith. Um, I get to go after Gurney Norman. How about that? That's, that's great. Um, two things. One is, you don't have to go get the Chester essay. I'm going to read it just a little bit. Um, the other thing is, I did misspell my name as, as Brain one time, once. <laughs> but when all of my classmates started calling me that, my grandma was, worked in the school and she would come pick me up and my classmates were saying, call me Brain, see your Brain. She's like, what, what's that all about? I'm really smart, Grandma. All, all the kids know how smart I am. Um, I actually want to start off with a 
what I think is a, a poem. I'm not actually sure. I was I, um, I saw Kay Byer about a year ago, so we were talking about Kay last night. And I told her that I was, I was writing some poems, but I had this suspicion every once in a while that I was writing little essays and I was just arbitrarily breaking them up as I moved down the page. And she really, um, you know, pushed me to keep writing them no matter what they were. So I don't know if this is an essay or a poem, but I'm going to start this off just in, in, in thanks and, and sort of in dedication to Kay. I'm calling it On the Value of an Education. In the days when the Queen Anne's lace springs up as if from nowhere to float like untethered buoys atop the hayfield, my cousin hauls his history book down the hill to the barn and opens it up with a shotgun. In its center, he leaves a ragged portal, a spyglass through which one can see the rust overtaking the hayrake and the summer hot sun cooking the fields in the dried up spring that once satisfied our people. The truth is that not even this report from the shotgun can speak of how he hated that book, how it pulled down his back with its never-ending pages of dates and deaths, all of America pinned down. But now he feels the lightness, the freedom from the Americans, feels the promise of life beyond high school in this barn and this bottomland. But he can't know now that before long his pack will weigh down with tourniquet and chem lights and baby wipes, that even on his back, covered in Iraqi darkness, his body will feel the weight of an M4 and grenades and night optics hours after he has laid them down. Or that beneath the heavy heat of day, one eye pinched shut, the other trained through the scope, he will imagine the circle focusing his vision upon paper targets or shifty-eyed elders or nothing at all is a blasted open 11th grade textbook along the creek our people settled over a century ago. And he will whisper history and shoot or not shoot, and then he will come back home again. So I always, I've read this essay a few times, and I always say this is an essay which I think is, means nonfiction, but people always afterwards will say, there's no way that's true. So I am here to tell you before I read this, this is 100% true. I made none of this up. Um, and you can look it up in the, the Wikipedia if you need to. Um, it's called Goat Gonads, Vigor Before Viagra. J.R. Brinkley was taken with goat love. The vigor, the passion, the regularity... He couldn't steer his eyes clear. Day after day at the meatpacking company where he worked as the house doctor, he watched goats go at it with mile-long stamina. He stared, he studied. Forget the mating habits of rabbits, he must have thought. Goats don't quit. It didn't take long before Dr. Brinkley decided he ought to marry his newfound goat knowledge with his medical expertise. He'd met enough impotent farmers in Kansas Farmers who wanted the hardiness these goats endowed to know there was something marketable, something medical happening before his eyes. But old J.R. wasn't really a doctor. He was just a man watching goats do it at a slaughterhouse. <laughs> the year was 1917. Simpler times. Bill Stitzworth was his first. The farmer walked into Doc Brinkley's practice in Milford, Kansas, complaining of impotence. He left with goat gonads. More precisely, he went home with pieces of Togenberg goat gonads implanted in his testicles. Weeks later, Stitzworth 
was bragging around town about his libido. And soon his wife was pregnant. The couple named their son Billy. <laughs> you should know that Doc Brinkley wore a thin goatee his entire adult life. Here are some other things you should know. J.R. Brinkley's daddy had been a real doctor back in the mountains of North Carolina where J.R. was born. J.R. was orphaned at age 10. He married two women at the same time. And he was many things before a doctor. He sold snake oil. He worked as a railroad telegrapher. He traveled about injecting people with colored water until he finally bought several fraudulent diplomas, including his $500 medical degree, and settled in Kansas. Once news of Stitsworth improved sex life spread through Milford, farmers were lining up at Doc Brinkley's door for an implant. Brinkley charged $750 a pop, which was more than the cost of his diploma, and he fashioned an ad campaign around baby, about a baby Billy, Stitsworth gonad, goat gonad bread boy. Over the next few years, Doc performed over 16,000 goat gonad transplants. He experimented with different breeds of goats, different sizes of splices of testes, different advertising techniques. He got rich. He got famous. He bought a plane and flew all over the state. He ran for governor and won. <laughs> well, technically, he lost because most of his winning votes were write-ins for Doc or Doctor. So he left Kansas and built the largest radio tower the world has ever seen just across the Texan border in Mexico. His million-watt station, Zira, introduced the U.S. to a virtually unknown family from the mountains of Virginia, the Carters. Zira broadcasted to both coasts and empty Midwestern corners, often blasting the airwaves with fiddle and banjo music from the mountains. And soon it pulled the biggest, biggest names in music to its studios, Jimmy Rogers, Patsy Cline, Gene Autry. With the money from sticking goat cojones and grown men, Brinkley started a Mexican radio station that disseminated the traditional ballads from Appalachia to America. He was an inventor, a creator, a pioneer. But soon the haters caught up with Doc using names like charlatan, thief, and fraud. Lawsuits piled up. He lost money, his station, and eventually his legs after a heart attack. In 1942, he died as he began helpless and dirt poor in the mountains of North Carolina. But Brinkley's is an odd story of defunctness. In all of the dying and the invalid procedures, the bankrupt radio station, he managed to implant persisting seeds. His station's format, commercials, talk, and popular music revolutionized the radio industry. And his airplane-driven gubernatorial campaign created a new political strategy involving sound trucks, and radio, trains, and planes. He brought the world a genre of music that had been carried from the British Isles and holed up in the Appalachian Mountains for centuries. I sometimes think of Doc when I flip the hundreds of television channels in my living room and find commercials of old folks in steamy outdoor bathtubs or middle-aged couples slyly winking to light jazz, <laughs> knowing that when the pill is popped, it's on. I imagine him in a white gown and goatee and gloves, slices of goat gonads resting on a tray, and one of those smiling, polo-sporting, muscular, middle-aged men under anesthesia on the table. The graying, tan wife has already slipped into something more comfortable in the waiting room. What time will he be ready? She calls out to Doc. Lickety-split, he winks, raising the scalpel. I sometimes say the words, alas, and virility before changing the channel to CMT to watch Miley Cyrus dance around.
I'm going to read one last um, short piece. It's called What's Passed On. Last year, amid what passes for bustle in the slow south, I stepped into a coffee shop in Charleston, South Carolina. Before I could get the words large coffee off my tongue, the barista looked me up and down and said, oh, my friend would love you. I hesitated. Not sure if I should feel flattered or worried. I'm not ugly enough to make babies cry, but I'm not good looking enough to turn any heads. So I tried to fit a casual smile to my face. Oh, yeah? Yeah, she loves chest hair. (laughs) She nodded towards my shirt, the top two buttons undone to contend with the lowland heat, a scraggle sneaking out. She should visit Greece, I joked. (laughs) But the barista didn't get it, and I took my coffee to go. It's true, I'm hairy. But it's not surprising. The Scots-Irish and Welsh people who fill my family trees settled in the southern Appalachian mountains in the 18th century, and we haven't left. Those Maxwells and Joneses and Prestwoods and Harrells passed along genes, helping each next begotten son better survive falling snow and rising elevation. Those first men, most of them settling the land I was raised on just after the Cherokee were forced out by treaty upon treaty, were rough. They chose to stake their lives in a place that was only then labeled as the wilderness on many maps. The first of them, Abraham, pushed into the Blue Ridge Mountains at the age of 75. His wife died. He remarried a 30-something named Bathsheba, which is true, (laughs) and they lit out. In the midst of thick, lawless forest with roaming bands of bushwhackers and renegade Indians ghosting through the woods, he pulled down trees and raised up a new life. In the hair sprouting on my chest, I have stories of my ancestor Hiram fighting off the men who'd come to take his sons away to fight for the Confederacy, Jim chasing down a car thief around switchbacks in the Smoky Mountains, Ray somehow missing the mountain lion that leapt after his horse, men's men, shooting guns, taming land, growing big families. Unfortunately, the body hair they've given me is not in style. Had I been born 30 years earlier, coming into adulthood as Burt Reynolds spread his chest hair across the pages of Cosmo, (laughs) then flaunted I would. But this is the age of hairless, six-packed, nay, eight-packed Ryan Goslings and Channing Tatums. Today, men ought to be bulky boys, smooth skin like dolphins, as if they'd been bred not to shed on the carpet. And still, I've never been tempted to shave or laser or wax or meditate away my man-made sweater. And this is mostly because I'm lazy. But it's also because I like my hair. I know I've inherited it. Something in its absolute attachment to me also attaches me to the men who've come before me. When my son was born, my wife and I were schooled by the nurses upon the benefits of skin to skin, letting our newborn lie upon our naked chests. And indeed, it seemed magical. Upon contact, he'd calm, nuzzle in, close his eyes, and he would also grab. (laughs) Like an angry crab, he'd latch on the tufts of my chest hair with no sign of ever letting loose. This was the primitive grasping reflex, the nurse later explained. The evolutionary echo of an ape infant clinging to his mother's fur as she charged through the jungle. In his first hours, it was this chest hair that my son first knew of me, our first painful connection. I couldn't provide him with milk, but I could give him this, something to hold to. 
I then begin to wonder what else I would or could give him. Questions of inheritance become immediate and daunting when one becomes a father. As soon as my son came crying into the world, I supposedly shifted into a model of manhood. I knew he would watch the way I approach women and food and the lawn and language. I worried about what I'd pass on. Yet no matter what else he received from me, I reckoned the odds pretty good that he'd eventually wear the chest hair of the men before us. In surveying those men, no matter the far-off stories of fighting and rowdiness, I find hardy but gentle men, men I'd happily push in front of my boy to say, look here. My mother's father woke up dizzy and numb a couple of weeks ago. This came out of nowhere. He's 83, but as active as a 33-year-old, which is to say more active than me. A few days prior, I'd driven by his house to see him on a ladder installing a new floodlight my grandmother holding the instructions down below. The day before waking up out of sorts, he'd mown the grass. It took a day full of inconclusive tests and head-scratching before the doctors realized his aorta had torn, blood pooling instead of pumping. They rushed him to a bigger hospital to open him up in the middle of the night, and before the surgery, the nurses shaved his chest. Upon hearing he'd been whisked away for an emergency surgery, I felt sure he was going to die. I'd seen him pale and faded in the day earlier at the hospital, while my wife ushered our son, now two years old, up the stairs for his bath. I slipped into the bedroom and wept. Hunkered in the corner, I cried most out of the fear that my son, splashing and playing above me, wouldn't come to know this man as I did. My son takes his middle name from my grandfather, Ray. And my son, Abraham Ray, is taken with my grandfather. Most days, he asks to go to Papa's house. And to my grandmother's amusement, it's always Papa's house, not Granny and Papa's. Always Papa's food, Papa's couch. He gets a ride on the tractor or the chance to roll down the steep hill. What tugged most at my chest that night was the inevitable conversation when my son next asked to go to Papa's. I also, felt I also felt I had to take an accounting of what he could learn from Papa, but might not learn from me. Ray grew up in the Cataloochee Valley, the youngest of two handfuls of children, and was a reckless boy. He'd wrecked 13 cars by the time he was 18, including the teacher's car that he backed into with the stolen school bus. <laughs> but after he returned from his deployment during the Korean War and settled down with Grace, he took a job at the plant and shaped a simple, comfortable life. For the 33 years that I've known him, he's been quiet, calm, and funny, his language steeped in the mountains full of thyres and yens and aints, and his manner always even. I'd only seen hints of his revelrous youth, his picking up a pool cue and running the table at my uncle's house once. But from every other angle I could see, he was a man who could fix anything broken, deliver a witty turn of phrase in the midst of small talk, and do whatever his family needed. Working the night shift, driving long delivery routes, doing the dishes after every meal. I worried I couldn't properly teach my son to use a ratchet or change his oil. I worried he'd not know a man as wholly content to be still as my grandfather. A man always at ease to sit and watch and listen. Sobbing on the floor in the dark, I could only hope I'd inherited and embodied some of the man my grandfather had become if not for my sake, then for my son's. Miraculously, my grandfather survived the surgery. 
Most miraculously, his body reacted like a young man's. The hospital staff couldn't help but release him merely six days after removing and returning his heart. Grandma took him home, a long scar running the length of his now-shaven chest. I wondered how strange his chest felt to him, the smoothness of his skin like a boy's but with a fault line now bisecting him, a reminder of life and death. We couldn't hold our son off long. A few days after Papa returned home, we took Abe over. I wished I could know what he saw in the Papa before him, leaning on a walker, slowed and tired. Hey, little feller, Papa said. In my arms, Abe absentmindedly slid his hand into my shirt, an occasional nervous habit, brushing his small fingers along my hair. He smiled at Papa, and I hoped what he saw standing in that house was a man we both hoped we might become. A man like so many of the men who shape us, those tough, dogged, soft souls covered up in hair. Thanks. Rebecca Galehow is going to end our evening tonight. And like so many of us here this week, I've been lucky to study writing with Rebecca, a teacher who makes you dig deep and go to all those scary places you don't want to go to. Her collection of poems, Render an Apocalypse, received the Cleveland State University Poetry Center First Book Prize. Rebecca also worked with a native Arabic speaker to translate the poetry of Amal al-Jabouri, an Iraqi woman living in exile. That book, titled Hagar Before the Occupation, Hagar After the Occupation, was listed by the Library Journal as a best book of 2011 and a finalist for 3%'s Best Translated Book Award. Rebecca was also the photographer for Arwen Donahue's exceptional oral, oral history collection, This Is Home Now, Kentucky's Holocaust Survivors Speak. Her work has been collected in several anthologies. She's the recipient of fellowships from the T Kentucky Arts Council, the Kentucky Foundation for Women, the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, and the Carson McCullers Center. She served as senior editor at Oxford American Magazine and continues to serve as poetry editor there. When Rebecca was earning her PhD at Texas Tech University, she told me she was trying to write her way through all that cotton on the West Texas landscape. And she did with the publication earlier this year of her collection of poems titled American Purgatory, selected by Dawn Cher for the Sexton Prize. American Purgatory is a collection of poems located in a ruined world, drought and thirst, cruel labor, genetic deformities, dust storms, and death are the norm. Laura McKee writes this of American Purgatory. Through Howe's rapturous storytelling and visceral imagery, we feel this world in our bones, both the acute edge of man-made oppression and destruction, as well as the redemptive force of friendship, community, communion with nature, and faith. American Purgatory is a visionary work, and Howell urgently reminds us why our planet and the lives of others are worth fighting to protect and that although the choice to act still lies before us, it can be taken from us at any moment. Please welcome the James Steele Writer-in-Residence at Heinemann Settlement School, Rebecca Gale Howell.
how are y'all doing? Doing okay? Um, I want to thank uh, everyone for reading tonight. This has been really fun. And uh, Murray for hosting us, and Marianne Worthington for hosting us, and for being uh, one of the most ferocious women I've ever known. And to the settlement school and, and Brett Hutchinson, wherever he may be, um, thank you for having faith in me and my work to step into this tradition and to um, step into Mr. Still's legacy here is one of the great privileges of my life. I'm going to read to you from the Purgatory um, just a few notes before I really start. Uh, I don't, uh, I wouldn't want to argue with Don Cher about what to buy at the grocery store, let alone my own poems. But I will say that for me, um, he says that the purgatory is the American South. And for me, it's not. It's, um, it's uh, capitalism. What I found when I was in West Texas was a place that was so economically stratified um, that the people who uh, made eye contact with each other were the people who were upper middle class and the people who didn't, who were erased socially, were not um, and were often brown or black um, and there was no real between um, and it was this place not unlike many company communities, but um, where, the, where the town was the center, and then out from the town, we, they, we were surrounded by these industrial cotton farms. And then out from there, we were surrounded by um, pump jacks. So while I was living there and, and moving in and out of this community that was not only economically stratified, but sort of spiritually stratified, um, I really started thinking about... Um, uh, who our God was in this country, and um, if that God is money, what it what it's like to sit suspended uh, by that God's judgment. So that's that's those are the experiences that gave rise to this book. And uh, the other the other things you need to know is there the protagonist, the I character, the narrator is a is a woman who finds herself in this place and. Um, she is joined by two other main characters. One is a man named Slade. Um, you guys recognize maybe where he got his name. And uh, he's sort of, um, he, he thinks he can make sense of this place and of this, this order that this uh, place deals with through a theology. And you'll hear that in him. And then another character is named Little, and he's a water witch. Uh, he's able to find water when no one else is able to. And she moves between these two men. Has a long prose poem and then some short American sonnets that follow. I'm just going to read them in sequence so that you can breathe in and out of the story. It's like this. No one was born here. We are persons held to service and labor. We are the ones keeping it going, and under us, others keep us going. They say when all this is grass, you might dig down a foot, but you'd find moist dirt. 
that some worm would be there to eat what rots, to resurrect with shit our humus. When it's dry, a worm will cocoon, take care of itself, curl tight in its tear of mucus until the sand is soul again. Snakes is what we have. Maybe I don't know what forgiveness is, but I know a snake will unhook its own jaw to get what it's there to take. This isn't about the snakes. When I was a child, I fought like a child. I wiggled out of any strong arm trying to hold me, hold on to me. I was afraid of my brevity, I know now. The woman's shadow I called mother cast so long I could not see her eyes and felt she did not end. She did. When she was gone, I'd hide on the stairs and sit silent as evening reached through a row of square windows, each no bigger than my palm. I'd press my face hard against the cool iron rail and count the set specks suspended in the light's amber. The dust here is big, and when it's windshot, it gets in. My eyes, my teeth, the bed, where I sweat out the childish things. We work a whore's hours, but care less. Exterminate, landscape, fire watch, pave the lots, cut hair, bartend, plum. Morning comes early and so do we, a mess of women and men in yesterday's clothes, made to compete for work will be made to do. Get your ID. Number 244. Number 108. Number I don't give a good goddamn because they're not calling me anyway. The best job is laying fence. Everybody wants a fence. Some so close, it's like we're planting the posts right through the middle of their feet. Hang a sign that reads, don't tread on me. Take this dog, one of a dozen laid low by some cargo truck trying to make his hour count. I'm supposed to shovel it, her and the rest. When I look behind me, the day lines the road's shoulder with black trash bags that shine in the heat like water shines when you want to get in it. Traffic moves. Between it and the wind, I plant my feet to bend but not fall into her. I'll have to break her legs so I can fit her into the bag. I'm given so many bags. That's the way with drought. Nobody wants to be where she is. We've built an offing of shopping plazas. We live in trailers and tell ourselves they'll stand. An outside town that isn't a town, the cotton fields plowed neat, ready as a girl. The thing about dogs is, they need us. Otherwise, they're half animals, scabbed with mange, scared of the high sun. I can see why. What do I know about drought? What do I know about winds that open the plain sky, the sun bleeding into blue hour, when the burrow owls rise up to stalk, their eyes warning fires, what do they know? Here's something to cry about. It's a myth. No such thing as a good bitch without a bad bitch. 
Dogs are gods only so far as they can't help who they are. I can lie. I can lie my way straight through the fat belly of fear. But I can't help that. I'm here. We do not know what we do not know. The drops sound like rocks thrown into a still tub. A window glass taps. Not today. Not today. Dust to mud. The crew and I lay sod and expect New England. I should listen. My grace is sufficient, Brother Slade reminds us. He and I I take off our shoes and stand bowed, washing. He's tall for a Bible man and with red hair. The air is almost oceanic. I do not trust him. Everything dies. I tell him an old lover said that to me each night. Slade rises to bend backward, his hand on his hip. His eyes open straight to the sun. Every dog has a first day. Slade was pulling minnows out of the dry river the day we met. Puddles, more or less, was all that was left, but what could live wanted to and tried. Treading narrow circles, a glide of brittle fence. He wore those rubber boots, though the sun was an anvil and very little wet. He smiled. I remember that. His nickel smiled right at me, his fingers letting fall the small fish muscles into a bag filled with yellow tap. I didn't ask his name or what he thought he was doing. We talked. I listened as he taught me to relax the hand just enough. They can smell, he said. The oils our pores release when we tense to catch. You have to believe it, he said. You don't mean any harm. I'm covered in it right now. All we grow here is cotton stalks, thirsty weed that sells. When summer leaves, look out. The high ground will be fogged by bowls the size of testicles, every inch a reap of what we have for what we want of what we want. Thirsty, but it sells. The engine pickers would lift three, four rows, the heads and the seeds. Now, It's all handwork, hold the lint pure. Quiet the labor, quiet the greed. Today I watched a mother and son shop the market. The kid led that tired woman like she wore a leash. Last night, the fox traded his holler for two rats. Before that, the rats ate trash because it's all we had. Commerce. Every action, exchange. With cotton, you can stuff your white ears white. You can swaddle your tongue 
them. Do you understand? I mean to explain the high demand. I'll spare you the details. We treat them like it's catching. Like those people chose a joke birthright. Some have no eyes, the sockets patched with paper flesh. Others gifted, three arms, four, an ear. The kid is one. His just-born heart thrummed outside his body, no breastbone, his mouth red wide for the surging scream, but silence is what was heard, save the swish of lifeblood through the brute child's vows, bulbous wet root, mint hidden all his days there, exposed like a woman to the air's sting, like the woman who lay beneath him dead, no, struck at what she'd made. Most brutes are put to work the fields, bent over their secrets, swollen heads bobbing in and out the rows. The spray planes still circle on the hour. I don't know what the pilots think there's left to kill. It's not true. Some were born here. It's that no one gives birth here anymore. Same song, second verse. I get sick when I see one of their stub arms waving. I don't want to touch them. And anyway, Slade hurries us when we're told to go log stock. Who could report what those people need? The plane sprayed for weevils. That's what was said. Then fire ants. That's what was said. But it was a tense city of mounds today. Scamp pests will eat any flesh. The air rots out there. I blame the brutes, but I know it's my own dread I smell fetid and kicking. The ones who have tongues confess toward night. It was grace that taught my heart. Across of tails, 
bent to the motion of the clock. They moved down my neck. I woke cold and sweating. I woke knowing I had no home. They say the low moon is coming. Maybe so. Why else would the street dogs make so much noise? I wish it meant something. I wish a moon could pull so strong dirt would gush well. I'd get my silver bucket. I'd open my mouth. The fire, it's a game. One guy sets it from boredom. And from boredom, the other puts it out. Thank you. Visit us online at wmfapodcast.com to find links to some of the things we talked about today and to subscribe to the show and the WMFA newsletter, which includes episode notes and exclusive content. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes and leave a review. Get in touch at hello at wmfapodcast.com or on Twitter and Instagram at wmfapodcast. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.